how can the world's population be collapsing if we're still growing? That's the conundrum. It really is counterintuitive. Last year, there were only 700,000 babies being born. So there's a 22% drop already in the UK. Countries like Italy are 55% down. Germany's 36% down. Japan's 55% down. I don't know why we're being told this absolute nonsense about population explosions when that was a thing of the past. What clearly occurred was a deferring of parenthood. It wasn't that people suddenly decided, okay, well, I'm not going to have children. It was more that people decided, well, I'm not going to do it now. He's 25, 27. I'm going to wait till I'm 30. And that's the pattern. Actually, more childless men than childless women. And I think men need to understand that this applies to them just as much. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a data scientist, demographer, and the creator of a very, very good and important uh, film called Birth Gap. Stephen J. Shaw, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for inviting me here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, you are talking about an issue that I genuinely think will be the biggest conversation uh, over the next five to 10 years that all of Western societies, and actually, frankly, societies outside the West are gonna be having and seeing as crucial to their survival, frankly. Before we get into all of that, though, who are you? What has been your journey through life? How do you find yourself sitting here talking to us? Well, I didn't expect that I'd find myself talking to anybody about a film I'd been. I'd never intended to be a filmmaker. Uh, my background is, first of all, in engineering, computer coding. Um, for 20 years, I've run a data analytics company out of the US doing forecasting and data predictions for industries like the car industry. And seven years ago, I saw some data that basically pointed to the world's population collapsing. That shocked me so much that I decided I needed to write a book about it. My younger son said, Dad, younger people don't read books anymore. We watch documentaries. I thought, well, there's no way I'm ever going to do that. That's the end of this story for me. Until I came across someone who was in, the, in that world. And seven years later, yeah, the Birth Gap Childless World documentary, yeah, it, it is out. You should have made it a TikTok documentary if you really <laughs> want to reach the young people, just 20 seconds. Uh, but Birth Gap, uh, I've had a chance to watch part of it. it, it and as I say, it's super important. Um, Explain to everybody, look, we all know, right, that the population of the world is exploding, you know, we're going to be on 9 billion people by whenever, we're never going to have enough resources, we're all going to die, the planet's going to burn, we've got 12 good harvests left and all of that. Isn't that all true and right? So how can the world's population be collapsing if we're still growing? That's the conundrum. It really is counterintuitive, but it's true. The reason the world's population is still growing is only because people are living longer and surviving longer, in fact, in the case of countries like India, for example, like parts of Africa, where many people would have died in childhood. That didn't happen 30, 40 years ago. So as a planet, we've got a lot of young people who will simply live through their lives. And that's a good thing. But that's not going to go on forever. We know we will max out at no more than 11 billion, possibly a little bit less. But we're aging. So all growth is coming from aging. And if you look at the total number of babies being born on the planet, we hit a maximum around 2014 of 143 million babies being born that year. It's never been higher, and I don't think it will be as high again. More recently, that's down to 132 million. So we're basically 10 million down already in 10 years compared to what we were in 2014. That's globally. That includes sub-Saharan Africa. Um, if you look at countries like where I live, Japan, it's just frightening. And so is China, and so is much of Europe. And um, frankly, the rest of the world is on the same path. What I'm getting at though, Stephen, is to people who are not familiar yeah. with the issue that we're talking about, which is the fact that we're not having enough kids, basically, yeah. to put it simply. Uh, the narrative has been for many, many years, for decades actually, that there's a population bomb. There was a, a book of that name that had a huge impact on how people thought about this. Yes. That the, the expanding population of human beings on the planet was a fundamental threat to the people who were already alive, but also to the planet itself. And what you're saying is, is the opposite of that, which is we're not having enough children. Mm -hmm. So uh, how does one reconcile that if, if it's the first time they've encountered your 
your uh, data and your information? Well, the data, the information we're being given is wrong, uh, vastly outdated. We already knew back in the 70s that the world's population was going to peak. We already knew it was going to peak at around what we are now and we, because we saw falling birth rates everywhere at that time, almost everywhere. But the trend was constant. But these voices have been there and they've infuriated me. And I think that's one of the reasons I made the documentary because I thought I'm involved in data prediction. I have three children I'm trying to educate. They were teenagers at that time to prepare for the future. Why don't I know? But not only that, the clients I have including some pretty senior executives in industries around the world who I'm talking to about planning and forecasting. No one in those corporations is talking about what, what, we're, what we're talking about here, population decline and collapse. So I felt that nobody knows about this. So what are these voices? Why is it that we, through education systems, through the media, are bombarding us with this utter nonsense about population explosions? Yes, the world's population did increase. It clearly is still aging, but the underlying trend, which is what we need to be focused on, is downwards. So, I, 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 you know, something's become institutionalized to educate us. I'm not sure it's brainwashing, but I wonder, frankly. But we're being educated with information using charts where people start telling us the population in the year 1800 was down here, 1 billion. And these curves go up like this, and they say, this is where we are now. And then they stop. And what they might even do is look upwards, implying that we're going up forever. That's what I thought seven years ago. I'm sure it's what my kids thought, because the textbooks they used, they showed me, that's what they showed. But we know that we're going to plateau, because there's so few babies being born now. We've known this for a very long time. So anybody who wants to talk honestly about population will be telling you, yes, we went through this, but we know it's going to maximize, going to plateau. We're then going to become a much older planet with people, frankly, who are going to be um, you know, in, in need of care and will not probably have the care that they need because the workforces are going to shrink. And then it's going to decline. That's the real story of population. And for many nations, another problem I have, frankly, is when people talk about total population. This is nonsense. What matters to you and me are our own countries, predominantly, or the countries we like to visit, or our own communities, in fact. Taking the total population of the planet, well, fine, but we also need to be looking at what's happening under our own noses. And for the UK, if I can just share with you something. In the UK right now, there are around 900,000 people aged exactly 50. I like that number because 50-year-olds will retire in about 20 years. So 900,000. Last year, there were only 700,000 babies being born. So there's a 22% drop already in the UK in terms of that ratio. Now, in 20 years' time, whenever 50-year-olds go to retire, newborns will be the ones who are finishing school, just about, to take the jobs in the workforce. Countries like Italy are 55% down. Germany's 36% down. Japan's 55% down. So... You know, when I look at that, you realize that life is going to change for so many countries and all the, for young and old alike. I don't know why we're being told this absolute nonsense about population explosions when that was a thing of the past. You touched very briefly on why this is not a good thing. So, but apart from that, why isn't it a good thing? Whether it's a good thing or bad thing, we need to prepare for it. Now, let's say someone says it's good, someone says it's bad. The world is going to change. And I think anyone surely would want to know how the world's going to change. I assumed that I was educating my kids for a future that was going to be similar to my generation. You know, so putting them on the same path, the same education, same career path. I would have expected a similar, hopefully, retirement path. But when you realize that the structure of societies where typically there's been a much smaller number of older people and a much larger size of workforce, that that is shifting to become what I call an inverted world, where there's so many old people to take care of and a shrinking workforce. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. Um, first of all, taxes are going to increase significantly if we're going to be able to keep the same level of health care for older people. Something like, I believe, two-thirds of all health care costs um, are devoted to older people. 
So those are going to expand. I don't know how the NHS is going to cope with that in the UK, never mind health services elsewhere. But you've also got social security, you've also got pension systems. Most people think, I did too, that the money we take as pensioners, I'm not quite there yet, but the money we will get is the money that we were paying while we were working. But it's not. The money we pay in towards pension systems in most countries today goes to pay for current retirees. So any generation is expecting or needing to appoint younger generations to keep paying in to support those pensions. So this is just an idea of the changes that we're going to be looking at. There are many others as well. So Francis, I'm not saying that the world's population is too small, too big. I'm saying a change is about to happen. And this change will last for the rest of this century. It's going to be a very long, slow, and I think quite painful change. So I just wanted people to, to understand that the world is not going to be the same for you know, much of the rest of the century. And so what are the reasons behind this? Why is this happening, Stephen? Childlessness. Um, whenever I started my research, um, I couldn't understand why no one had really been able to explain why birth rates have been falling in many nations at almost the exact same rate, starting at almost the exact same time. So if you take Japan, around 1973-74, there was a very sharp fall in birth rates. Italy had happened at the same time. Ger Germany just a little bit earlier. Many people had theories that, oh, in Japan it's work-life balance. They work too hard. And that I would say it's probably true, but you couldn't say that of Italy necessary. <laughs> um, in Italy, it was blamed on something else. It was blamed on youth unemployment. Mm -hmm. Spain too. Germany had other reasons. But I couldn't believe that this was a big coincidence. In fact, if you look at this trend, it started in these places at the same time, and it spread th throughout those regions. It didn't ever go back to normal. It, it kind of was a progressive thing. It just spread across now the entire more developed industrialized world and now I'm far into the developing world. So the idea that there wasn't a common explanation was to me almost an impossibility. So I set, I set out to see if I could find a connection. And it took a year and a half before I was even able to come up with a, an hypothesis. And that hypothesis finally formed in a bar in Tokyo. There's not many scientific hypotheses get formed <laughs> in the bars in Tokyo. Oh, maybe there are, I don't know. Um, after a year and a half, I noticed something strange um, that I couldn't find all that many people who had no brothers and sisters. Of course, some, but not that many. And to have birth rates below, on average, two children per woman, you have to have a lot of people either with no children or with only one child or a mix thereof. And in this particular bar this night, I was there with some friends and there's other people coming. And I said to myself, okay, tonight, I'm going to try and ask at least 10 people if they have brothers and sisters. And if it's not more than one or two, you know, I think there's a thesis here. I ended up asking 15 Japanese people. And I think one didn't have any brothers and sisters. All the rest were two, three, four, one even had seven. Wow. And okay. I felt at that moment I have to find a way to analyze childlessness in a way it hadn't been done before. Usually the way we measure childlessness is waiting till people are 45 years old. And that means there's a long lag and the analysis is, is a lot more difficult to do. So that was my challenge then. And that's the one thing I was able to, to identify and be clear. I will say this, and please keep this in the edit. I will support 100% anybody who decides they do not want children. I will be the biggest supporter. This is not about trying to coerce people to have children who do not want. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> Repeat. <laughs> um, but those people are the minority um, compared to, if you look in countries like um, Japan, Europe, where this trend has been in place for, for many decades, less so in the US and other countries that are still transitioning, but what you end up with in countries with very high childlessness. So for example, right now in uh, Japan, you have childlessness running around 35%. In Italy, it's 40%. Around 80% of those people had planned to have children. 
So if four out of five people had planted the child and life took its course, and that's why I ended up calling it unplanned childlessness. So the reason is unplanned childlessness. And then the question is why, um, why do people in the end not have the families they want to have? But that's, that's your show. So well, we'll, we'll get into that in a second, but let's first <laughs> yes. of all, just if we stick with the chronological order yes. of it, the initial triggers, which you're talking about in Germany, it's the late sixties and other countries, it's, it's the mid seventies. And you've talked uh, in, you talk in birth gap in the film about economic triggers. So it's the oil shock of the seventies yes. uh, and so on. Is that your contention that this is economically driven? Triggered. Triggered, economically triggered. Yes. I suppose the obvious question from where I'm sitting then is, I mean, I, I'm not much of a historian, but I have studied some history. Like the oil shock of the 70s was not the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. Yes. You know, and human beings had, went on and had children after the Great Depression. They went on and had children after World War II and during World War II. And all of the terrible experiences that human beings have always had, yes. they've always, we've always bounced back. Yes. We've never had this issue as far as I'm aware of yes. before. So why is essentially economic disruption, mm -hmm. why did that have such a huge triggering effect on this particular issue? So it's a great question. Um, it, and I don't cover this in the documentary, so let me go a little bit deeper. Um, and just to explain, I've lived in Japan for six years, but I've employed a researcher, and I've worked with academics there to look into the history of Japan around this time. If you look at the early 70s in Japan, what was happening was many people were moving into cities getting new jobs, working for the car companies, electronic companies, things were looking good. And around that time, things started to get more expensive. Rents started to go up. Um, more and more women were looking to work, but there are few kindergarten spaces. So there's tensions in communities trying to balance uh, affordability of apartments along with finding enough kindergarten spaces. But still, birth rates were relatively high. Then the oil shock hits. Suddenly, and Japan was the largest oil importer in the world at the time. So their entire growth required oil. At that moment, prices went up even more. Commodities you see in the documentary, shelves that were empty. This, this was a stressed society anyway. Then something happened and what clearly occurred was a deferring of parenthood. It wasn't that people suddenly decided, okay, well, I'm not going to have children. Um, it was more that people decided, well, I'm not going to do it now. He's 25, 27. I'm going to wait till I'm 30. And that's the pattern. Um, so when we look at America, well, many countries actually, but to take the mortgage crisis of 07, 08, you can look at America, you can look at Canada, Malaysia, Netherlands, even New Zealand. Around that time, childlessness was hovering around 15%. Um, so, so let me explain a little bit, if I can, on, on this as quickly as can. What you see with childlessness are waves. Waves that happen when, going back to the UK in the 1960s, the most common age of children was age 20 to 24. 30 years later in the 90s, that had shifted to 25 to 29. So it became natural to have children a little bit later. You wind the clock forward to, to now, and that's 30 to 34 in the UK, is the most common age for women to have a child. You then interject some form of economic shock into that and you're causing further delays into women's 30s, into the women's late 30s. That mean, frankly, women aren't able to have the children they want to have. So just to come back to your point that, yes, during famines and wars, you're absolutely right. Those times in the past have been times when basically societies delayed having children, but because it was normal to have children younger, at the end of the war, at the end of the pandemic, at the end of the crises, women were generally still young enough to be able to have the families they want to have. Today, that's changed. And look, and let's be really honest about this. We're not, women are being sold a lie. <laughs> They're being sold a lie of, you know, you can have it all, you can go out and work and have a career and do all of this and then have kids later on in your 30s. And the reality is you're going to be far less fertile in your late 30s than you will be if you have children in your early 20s. That question is going to make such a great little Twitter short, mate. Just so you go, <laughs> the reality is women have been sold down another world. Let me tell you, darling, what's going wrong? <laughs> and I have to be a little bit cautious here because... Um, Come on, it's called trigonometry. Just let it rip. Yeah. <laughs> 
so <laughs> in my words, if I can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like, just keep the distance away from your inflammatory language. Yeah. Sorry. I, I um, you're not 100% wrong. You're not, <laughs> you're not at all. But the way I see, I don't think anyone's doing the selling. I, 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 and I hope it's going to be easy to kind of explain the reality that has not been shared up until now for whatever reason. Mm. I think if you look at younger people, I have three children who are now in their 20s. Uh, I think young people have, and their parents, frankly, are of the belief mostly that if you get an education or training, it's then a good thing, clearly, to get a job, to get a career, build on that to a point of stability, and then maybe in your 30s, why not? What we're not aware of for whatever reason is that women's fertility, A, falls much faster than expected, that there's a lot of variability in it. Some people, some women are very fertile to 40 or, or older. Some lose their fertility by age 30. So we, we wow. don't know about that variation out mm -hmm. there for the risk. Also, we don't know that the quality of a woman's eggs, a woman is born with all of the eggs she will ever have in her life. Women do not make new eggs. So two things happen during that time, and it's covered in the documentary of Kim Kardashian's uh, uh, fertility doctor uh, include to explain how this happens. You lose both the count of eggs, but you also lose the quality of eggs. And then a third thing happens, which is the ability to carry a baby to term, the risks associated with that go up. So um, to be honest with you, and you, you'll see it in part two of the documentary, which is not quite out yet, uh, a little bit in part one, where I started asking women in their 40s and 50s without children, had they intended to have children? And it was a very delicate subject. And I have to be, I have to say, people watching this in this situation, these are people internally grieving the fact that they had never families. And you see deeply emotional scenes. And it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. It's, you know, something that I think we should know more about. Um, as a society, you know, just the fact that we've got to be sensitive to people. So just to give you an example, um, some people, perhaps many, um, who don't have children in the workplace will see a colleague bringing their child to work or talking about their children. So many of these people go to pieces when this happens. They'll go to the restroom, they'll go to the, the toilet and just stay there. They'll go and, you know, have a walk. We don't, Realize, I certainly, I didn't, the internal anguish that happens. So to your point, um, society, I agree, is not informing people, men or women, because men are trying to partner with women if they want kids who are able to have children. Men also are, are in the dark here. And um, so the question why that's happening, I don't know. It's remarkable. We teach people so much about biology in schools, but we don't cover this. So it's it's got to change. Well, you're right, I think, that, a and this is, I said it on Twitter a while back and people got annoyed with me as they do whenever anyone brings this up. But we, we've got to a position where a lot of people, but particularly in this case women, are, are going to end up in a position where they're not happy. They're not happy with where they've ended up. And I'm curious, I mean, the economics of this, I imagine, are significant because, you know, my wife, for example, right now, she, she's, she's not back to full-time work by any stretch of the imagination. And our son is a year old, and I don't think she'll be back to full-time work for a long time. And she doesn't want to be back to full-time work for a long time. But for a lot of people, that is not a position in, that they can, they can afford. They, they can't afford to, to, especially if, you know, both parents have a high-paying job and they need that money to maintain the lifestyle that they wish to have and that they're used to. Uh, that's, that's an economic difficulty that I think didn't exist in the past when 40, 50 years ago... A family of four could live on one person's income. Typically, the dad would go out to work, the mum wouldn't, and they could live on that comfortably, and it wasn't as big a deal. Now, economically, that's not uh, viable, but also societally, that's not quite viable either. Like, the choice of giving up a lot of money to stay home with the kids doesn't seem like a very appealing option to a lot of people as well. Partly, I have to say again, if people don't want to have children, I, we have to just accept that. I think the challenge is the conflict then for those who do want to and are trying to find the right time. I, I, I think the best way for me to answer this is to say, if we're going to find a solution to this problem, 
we've got to make it more flexible for people to have what I'm calling educational pathways and career pathways that make it easier to do things at the same time or to take breaks for, from one or the other. Why are we cramming all of our education into the first three, four years? Uh, I still take classes, college-level classes, uh, because I like to keep up to date with things. And um, it, it's, it's refreshing to study something that you want to learn at the time you want to learn it that's relevant to you. Um, I think we need to make education more flexible so that people are able to have children younger. And why not have people start their careers for the first time age 30 or 35? We're living longer now. The idea of retirement, I don't know what the French are thinking about right now, but retirement at age 63, is it 65? Yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be 75. At the young people today watching this, you're not going to retire until you're at least 75 to 80 years 100%. old. 100%. Yeah. So why not start careers it's 30, 35, if you're going to have a 40, 50 year career anyway. Mm -hmm. So I don't have all of the answers here, but I know the current structures that we have are for sure not helping or hindering many, many people. And also the thing that we don't talk about as well is that women like to partner with people who are, if not a similar level to them, education-wise and earning-wise, they prefer it if they're higher. But then what happens if, if you get women who go to university? And by the way, there are people, I'm in favour of women going to university. And, you know, educating, not really, educating themselves. <laughs> Stephen, they're just jokes, right? <laughs> you look so tense. Just jokes, mate. Um, so, if, you know, so women go into, you know, education. They, have, they come out, they have this amazing career, they have this amazing job, and then they want a partner, and then they realise that the partner that they want comes from a very, very small pool in which a lot of women are competing for that small pool of men. Well, that's right. Um, so this is called hypergamy. It's, it's, it's absolutely true that women do cross-culturally prefer to uh, partner with men who are at least as successful, whatever that yeah. means, as they are. And that's not going to change because that's part of who we are as a species. Men don't mind. Men will marry down, but actually prefer less uh, women her more educated it seems to be. We've got to accept that that's a reality. Now, your point is absolutely right because if you look at colleges in the US right now, almost two thirds of people at US colleges are, are, are women. Even in Thailand, it's 60%. It's, it's a global trend that women are focusing more on education. This is a problem. I don't have an answer to this. Uh, in some ways, I have to say that you know, men need to be studying harder, you know, or not dropping out of colleges. I mean, I heard recently the dropout rate for men at US colleges is much, much higher than women. So this is another problem we, we have to confront. Maybe if you personalize it, you would say if, uh, if a woman wants to be sure of finding someone, you know, don't leave it until you're 35 and through all your, your graduate education, et cetera, because you're right at that point in time, there will be a very small pool of people who you might feel you want to partner. Because that's the real challenge. And, you know, you have to feel really sorry for, for these women. Particularly, you know, I have relatives of mine who are doctors. You, you work really hard at school. You then go to university. Then you then have to go through medical school. You have to qualify. And by the time you've done all of your exams, you're in your early 30s, mid-30s, and you've pretty much just started your career. And then you have to go, oh, right, now I have to think about kids. It's, yeah. it's huge. It's huge. It's yeah. huge. And you wonder, how, what are we going to do to be able to actually overcome this challenge? And do we just need to start talking more honestly about female biology? One of the interviews that we did uh, was a young German medical student. Um, it didn't make the final cut of the documentary, but I will be including her in some future coverage. I think she was 23, 24. And... Um, she had decided to take a year out of medical school to have a child. Mm -hmm. And um, she was laughing with us. Yes, it's a struggle, but you know, you should see what it's like to be a doctor and have a child. And she had decided that if she didn't make that the right time for her, she'd probably end up being childless because she saw so many older doctors who were childless. And she was making it, she made it work. Um, to be honest with you, she was one of the happiest positive energy people. And of course, when you're 22, 23, 24, you do have more energy for things like that. And again, I have to say, I don't want to pressure people to have children younger than they want, but we have to make societies more flexible so that those who might consider this 
are better able to do so. Well, look, none of us wants to force, this is kind of, I think, part of the reason that we can't have this conversation the way we need to is you and us, to some extent, are very tense about coming across as telling other people what to do. None of us, just to be clear, none of the three of us wants to tell women or any other human beings how they should live their lives. Right. However, we are also starting to see that some of the ways we've been living as a society are not, generally speaking, creating the highest amount of fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and happiness for people, right? And so we should be able to acknowledge both of those at the same time. Yes. I think that's really, really important, actually. And, you know, we make all the jokes about it to diffuse the tension, but I know exactly why you are very careful about this because it's a very difficult issue to talk about. And we'll come back to talk about the issue itself in a second, but one of the ways that this difficulty of this issue showed up recently is uh, your experiences at Cambridge University. Tell us about that. Or my lack of experience. Your lack of experience, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I was invited by a student at Cambridge University to give a presentation, to show the documentary and the Q&A, and I was greatly honoured. And any students who want to invite me to universities anywhere, I'll try and be there. Um, the student's name was Charlie Bentley Astor, who I didn't know at that time, but I've got to know her quite well since. And um, she explained that at Cambridge University these days, it seemed to be quite a thing to protest. And that... She warned me we might have some people who were upset by the documentary. Well, when I first heard that, um, to be clear, I've screened the documentary 40, 50 times, uh, including to universities, international students, from various podcasts. I think there's now over 15,000 comments have been written about the documentary. Um, not one of those comments or one of those prior events would have ever given me any reason to think that anyone would want to cancel my documentary. Why? It's about life. It's about people. It's people's voices. I don't even come up with a conclusion in it. I simply say, here's the world and here's data. Hard data, real people. And most of the people I interview are women. In fact, the entire crew, other than me, there's about nine of us involved in making the documentary. They were all women, except me. And it wasn't I went out to try and find women to make this documentary. Women gravitated towards this project because they wanted to also hear answers from other people. So uh, when Charlie told me there might be a few protesters, that was, well, okay. Um, my first thought was I'd like to meet them. I'd like to sit down with them. I'd like to talk to them about why they're protesting and talk to them about their lives and how the world's going to change. What actually happened was on another scale, uh, there were protesters in the street a week before the uh, event took place. Varsity Magazine wrote a hit piece on me uh, challenging the documentary, but giving no reason for it whatsoever. Yet no one ever contacted me. No protester said, hey, Stephen, can you explain this data? They didn't even watch the full documentary. They only watched the intro to it. And <laughs> <laughs> So then, and what is the thrust of their criticism? Well, the reason it was actually cancelled was St. John's College felt that there'd be too much noise protest during exam time. So that was the excuse. Well, that's the heckler's veto. But wh right. why are they heckling in the first place? W what's wrong with, with talking about this issue? They've called me anti-feminist, misogynist, bigoted, racist. Racist? Uh, yes. And most recently, fascist. Welcome to the club. <laughs> That's what we all are now. Why? Why are you... Okay, look, anti-feminist and misogynist, I'm not saying you are, obviously you're not, but I can see how people can add two plus two and get about 75, right? W what does it have to do with racism? Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, clearly right. people are just trying to use terms. As Charlie put it, they're trying to intimidate other students yeah. and academics from attending this event. So by throwing out these words, accurate or not, it's just a warning to stay away. So the question there goes, to the, these people don't know me, they don't know the documentary. There's something in the subject matter they don't like, and I hear it might be to do with the definition of a woman. I think putting the term mother and woman in the same sentence today is provocative to some people, perhaps. That's what's been explained to me. So I, I you know, I don't want to, I'm a data scientist. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, it wasn't just a cancellation of the documentary, it was an attempt to cancel UN data. I mean, the data I gather is purely from government sources, and it's an attempt to cancel the voices of the world, mostly from women. And uh, something's clearly very, very wrong in society when universities were 
places where people go to absorb new ideas and to reject them or accept them or change them, that even now in universities, at least of all Cambridge. So I'm actually going back next week. Um, we're going to try one more time before the end of the semester to screen it. I think I've been told if it's cancelled again, I'll become the most cancelled person ever at Cambridge University because everyone else who got cancelled eventually went back and were able to kind of do their uh, uh, speech or whatever. So we'll see what happens next So time. I didn't know this part of it. I thought the reason that they were upset with your documentary is, you know, you were telling women to get back in the kitchen, that that was their interpretation. But it's not. It's the mere idea that that mothers are women, essentially. To be honest with you, no one's given me a specific reason. I mean, even if you read Farsley, there's no specific reason why this documentary is in any way upsetting to anybody. So the interpretation I've just given you um, is what I've been told that the group of people, the 90 people who were due to come and protest, often uh, protest against trans-related issues. And that's very sad. I mean, and these are people I actually want to reach out to, yeah. to sit down with, to talk about their lives. Uh, and I, I, I hope um, I get that chance. That's well, because you haven't met them. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But Stephen, moving on, there was this part of this which I, I feel we're not talking about, which is fertility levels are also dropping as well. So I was reading about certain studies that were looking at male fertility and saying the quality of sperm in, I think it's something like men in their 20s, is inferior to quality of sperm of men in their 50s. And how much of an effect is that having on this particular? Um, this comes up quite a lot. And the answer is, if it is having an effect, we haven't really seen it yet. It may be starting to be part of the data. We, we, we'll, we'll see in future. But one thing I'm very sure of, that is not the reason for the start of this trend. This trend started in the late 60s and 70s and has basically been on a continuum since then. So applying modern uh, or more recent possible explanations doesn't work out. I, I get up, perhaps the most amusing one. Um, I got a comment on one of the, 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 the sites that uh, they thought Ronald Reagan was the reason for the, this whole problem when it started in Japan in the 1970s. So people are often taking things that they hear that are more recent and applying. I, I get this a lot. But now you have to find a reason that can explain this going all the way back to the 70s and to explain why it started in some countries before others. Only then can you understand this. Well, I feel like we still haven't quite got there in terms of our conversation here because we talked about the economic shocks that people experienced in those countries yeah. and that those societies societies that have seen a, a, a reduction in the ratio between earnings and the cost of living, essentially, yeah. right? It's become harder uh, for a family to, to survive economically. Um, but I still feel like there's got to be some kind of cultural stroke psychological dimension to this where we have become more risk averse. And I think we see that in other areas of life as, as cultures generally. Uh, and I, I certainly would posit at least that the way we talk about climate change and the way we talk about the future of the planet has an impact on how people feel. Do you know the number of times I've talked to young people and probably at one point thought myself prior to really educating myself about these issues properly, you know, the, there is this sort of human beings are the virus narrative that's going around. Do you know what I mean? Like there's too many of us, we're causing too much of a strain on the planet. Why would we bring another person into this world that's about to collapse anyway? Like that is definitely out there as well. Do you think that's a contributing factor here? I worry that that will be a, a contributing factor in the decade or two ahead, because I do hear that more and more from younger people today. Frankly, birth rates are already so low. If that, you know, that could put us really over the age if that becomes the case. And it's sad because, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't think we should be ranking our crises. I'm as concerned about the planet as the next person. Uh, the dialogue that we have around the environment, you know, frustrates me, frankly, because we only seem to talk about certain aspects of it rather than, for example, technical solutions that, that we should be talking about. Mm -hmm. um, we should be talking about everything if we're genuinely worried about it. So, um, but the idea that whatever you think in terms of the environment, that someone can say to somebody else, do not have children, that's morally wrong. Mm -hmm. You might want to say, be careful how you raise your children you know, in terms of consumption, maybe that's okay. But I've heard of situations, I've heard of professors 
in universities in the US telling the classes they should not have children. And that's just shocking. That's, that's beyond immoral to me. If you were to say, let me bring in one of the other points uh, uh, about my findings, uh, in all of these countries, once a person, once a woman becomes a mother, family structure has not changed in decades. So back to the US in the 80s, back to Japan in the, in the 70s, the proportion of women in Japan having four or more children was 6% in the 1970s. Today, it's exactly the same. Now, that was quite a shock to me to find out, actually, once a woman has her first child, she is typically going on to have as many children as, as it looks like she will want to have because that 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 structure just does not change. But as a new father, just to interject briefly, that makes total sense to me because once you have your first, it's like they're like Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. Like you, you're going to have as many as you're going to have because they're great. You know what I mean? For the vast majority of people, it's just the experience transforms you, but it's getting people over that line is what you're talking about. So the reason we are where we are is not that families have become smaller, it's just there's way more people not having children at all. Yes. Right? Um, So, but I still feel like we haven't quite got to why that, my sense is my cultural and climate-related explanation you feel is much more forward-facing, but in terms of why we have dealt with these economic shocks and the cost of living issue, in the way that we have. Do we have any sort of sense of why it is that for the first time in, in probably human history, we are, we're whittling down our own society? Do we have an idea of why that is? Well, to go back to the, these triggers, the oil shock, the yeah. mortgage shock, et cetera, yeah. also in Korea, the, the, um, the currency crisis of the mid-90s, there's multiple examples of this. What, what, what you find is a very quick transition to high childlessness, but it never goes back. So it, it locks in. So the question it, to talk about the culture around this, societal norms change in some way that lock in a new pattern. And that pattern is one where people have children later. So I, I think what's happened is, frankly, um, as societies, and, and I mean, this is cross-cultural. I mean, you, you look at Japan as a culture, you look at Europe, different parts of Europe, the US, even Brazil is suffering from the exact same problem, even Russia. Um, and Ukraine. So you look at all of these places and you find that across all these cultures, once people start delaying parenthood, it gets locked in. And I I equate this a little bit. In in Japan, we have words for this. Um, The the person who was hired a a year or two before you is called senpai. So everyone has a senpai and senpai has a senpai. And then the people below you are like kohai, so it helps me to, with this terminology. If you are particularly a woman and you've just turned 30 and your senpai and senpai senpai have not had a child yet, mm. your feeling is, well, it's probably not my time yet because I might be perceived as, you know, so you're not even thinking of it. And what you might be thinking is, well, when senpai senpai, boss's boss, has a child, then there'll be a promotion opportunity. So I'm going to wait to that. Mm. So I think the way, you know, the world kind of welcomes people um, to kind of delay parenthood around this. So it becomes a cultural uh, phenomenon, but it yet, yet it's cross-cultural, if, if, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So essentially, we're, uh, once you've had the transition from having children young to not having children young, it becomes a locked-in cultural phenomenon that people essentially mimetically take on from others around them. Yes. And then you add to that the economic rationale for, well, I'll get my career sorted first, then we'll have kids. And because of that, as you say, 80% of the women who end up being childless did not intend to be childless. In countries that have gone through the full transition. Yeah. So in the US, there's a lot of women right now hoping to become a mother who are aged, you know, 35 to early 40s. And just statistically, you just look at the, re- the chances are, are not high. I mean, that's one other fact, just I, I love sharing if I can. Please, yeah. That in every country except one, and the one is Israel, I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. In every country I've looked at, women turning 30 without a child only have a 50-50 chance of ever becoming a mother. 30. In Israel, it's 31. It's just a little bit older. And when I asked people on a survey, what age do you think it's 50-50? 40 was the most common answer. So again, we have this mismatch about what is possible. We talked about fertility, but fertility is not the biggest reason people aren't becoming parents. 
is because they, they're not with a partner at that right time. So they're working on their career, 32, 33. Maybe they do have a partner at that time. Now everything's good for one of them, but maybe the other partner isn't quite ready. Or maybe there's a breakup or a divorce. Or maybe you actually don't have a boyfriend, girlfriend, partner at that time. Not having a partner at the right time is the biggest reason. And that's what I wanted to tell people uh, you know, at Cambridge was that, you know, one of the comments in, I think, Varsity Magazine from one student, a medical student, was that they don't need to be told whether they want to have children or not. What I want to tell them is actually it, it takes two to have a child and finding a partner at the right time is therefore really important and most people skip over that. And it's also the fact as well, you know, we're talking about the 60s and population collapse. I mean, the pill must play a massive part in this, surely. No. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so you would say so. And uh, the counter argument to this is that in Japan, the pill was not made legal until 1990. Really? Really. And wow. do you know, even today in Japan, only 3% of women take the pill. Three. It's incredible. I didn't know that to quite recently. Um, but let's go back. So the pill, I guess, late 60s, 70s, became commonplace across much of the industrialized world. And we, like you, many people, me too, I'm sure in the past, would have said, oh, the pill has enabled women to... Well, in Japan, there was no pill. What happened is there was a huge increase in abortions there. So with or without the pill, women were able to decide whether they wanted children or not. So you have to put that... And by the way, I have to say again, a caveat... I do not want to have any say on whether a woman wants to have an abortion or not. That's her choice, not, not, not my business. So th the fact that it's the pill alone, you know, that's what I said no to. But, but for sure, um, women have a lot more control over their biology. But unfortunately, we are not educating women well or men on how short fertility cycles can be. And it's also as well that now women are being fed this, you know, the, uh, this story that, and look, it, it works for some women as well, where they go, well, you know, technology is getting better and better. You can freeze your eggs. I've heard certain companies say to female executives, oh, we will freeze your eggs and we will pay for it, which you think sounds great. And you're going, hang on, that's really dystopian. And it's not just executives, it's young recruits, young women being brought from university are being sold this as a benefit. And when I first heard of egg freezing, um, I thought this was a great idea. I thought this is part of the solution. Um, but the more I thought about it, when I realized that oh, people are just delaying parenthood until they, they don't have a partner or they don't have energy. Um, in a way, I, I think... love the way you pointed at me. <laughs> Mate, I haven't slept for a year. I haven't looked this good for a year. <laughs> don't point at me when you say they haven't got energy. <laughs> So I've got forty-year-old dad energy. That's what I've got. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> I, you know, um, now, now I've lost my track. No, completely. I'm so sorry. You were talking about uh, egg freezing yeah, and people I, I, delaying parenthood yeah. to a point where they're, they're, they're old, like me. Well, I think it's dangerous to assume that egg freezing will will en masse solve this problem. It may solve it in a very few cases, and that's wonderful. Um, I've got a fertility doctor in Tokyo who's just you know, we're working with me right now to say, how can we let people know that this really might be a last hope resort that may or may not work? So I think we have to put everything in perspective. And, um, you know, if technologies get better and people are able to have children later in life, well, that's great. But we're just certainly not there yet. Stephen, so your, your key takeaway message, and correct me if any of this is incorrect, is you don't have as much time as you think. Yes. That's, that's one of your key messages. Yes. And if you get to 30 and you haven't got kids, your chances, statistically speaking, of having kids are 50-50 yes. at that point. My wife and I, we had our first son at 39, very late, probably have another one. Uh, just I, my, my wife comes from a family, like her granddad was born as like the 15th child and his mum was like 58 at the time. So she's maybe got genetically uh, in a better position, but you don't have as much time as you think. You don't. Right, you don't have as much time as you think. So if you wanna have children, Basically, you need to find a partner and try and make it work by around that time, if you haven't already, if you want to be a mother or if you want to be a parent. It's about prioritization. It's yeah. what's, what's important to you. And if someone decides, you know what, I'll take the risk, I'm going to, you know, that, that's fine. So I don't want to force people. No, 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 they're saying But that. that's not what but, I was saying. Yeah. Right? I was yeah. saying if you want to yeah. be a parent, that's kind of that's the strategy right. you want to yeah. follow. Now, societally, 
the question for me is, you, we, we touched on some of the impacts earlier, but I actually think we didn't quite go as, as deep as we could because when you talk in, in the movie, one of the stats you gave, which I was like, whoa, you said there are more adult diapers being sold in Japan than baby diapers Yes. already. Yes. Uh, it's been like that for quite a while, actually. That is terrifying, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, you know, I live in Japan, and the reason I'm there is because I'm passionate about this issue. I'm actually passionate about trying to help save Japan. Uh, one of the great things there is that everyone in Japan intensely knows about this topic. Um, it's on the media every day. The government are, you know, making... Uh, regular you know, policy changes to try and address it. So it's a place where I hope if anywhere in the world can solve it, it might be Japan first. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're right, another statistic, um, in Japan, this data goes back a few years, but within the last five to 10 years, the average number of people waiting for a care home was around 400,000 people. Uh, when you get to an age in Japan of needing a care home. You can't take care of yourself. You're living alone. That is the moment you can put yourself on the list to wait for a care home. So you need a care home, but you can't be on the list until you need it. Why? Because there aren't enough care home spaces. The average time, I think, from then to wait on a care home place is three years. So you've got people who literally are unable to take care of themselves, unable to address themselves, unable to do anything living for three years before that place in the care home opens up. Japan is a template for much of Europe. Um... Can I say, let me say it here, I haven't said this before, but um, I'm from the UK originally. I didn't have a vote here but um, because I don't live here, but I'm pro-Brexit. And at the time of Brexit, um, I, you know, contacted some newspapers here to say, look, I think we should do an article using some of the maps I've created to show how grim the situation is in Germany, Italy, Spain, much of Europe, because people need to know just how fast Europe's going down the hill economically, as well as in terms of the care of the elderly there. And uh, I I, I used the slogan, if you like, I was using the term, it's safer to be out because of what's going to happen in Europe with this rapid aging of old people that's already well underway. And um, so it's not just Japan, it's on, it's on our, you know, or on your shores here in the UK. Um, and it's ca- catching up so much, so fast in so many parts of the world. And, and I think what people probably haven't been able to quantify, but it's undoubtedly the case, is an aging society changes uh, everything. It changes whether people start businesses or not. It changes whether there's innovation in, in society. Because as we all know, that once you get to a certain age, you, you become less flexible and less willing to take a risk. I mean, that's why young people are much more risk-hungry because that's the time you're supposed to be trying things because you've got time to fail. Mm-hmm. You've got time to make a mistake. You've got time to do that. Economically, militarily, I mean, it just seems to me that this is a huge issue, as I said to you at the beginning, that people don't even understand the the implications of, let alone the implications of the implications, the second order, third order, fourth order consequences. Yeah, we haven't gone into too many of those, but just a a very obvious one is that we're going to have too much housing for the the number of people in our societies. And today in the UK, that's probably hard to understand because there's seen, it seemed to be the other way around at the moment, but that will change. And you know, these are societies, therefore, that will have decaying communities where houses will become desolate, um, where communities will become desolate. I feel young people will mostly move away from those communities. I think certain towns will become what I call magnet towns that people gravitate towards, mostly younger people, which become quite expensive. The older people will be left in the de- decaying towns without enough health care. Taxes are going to go up for everybody. And then you take national debts. So most countries, Japan certainly, all countries, I, I want to say, have got significant national debts. Uh, um, and these tend to get larger rather than smaller. Well, if you have a shrinking workforce to pay the interest on those, I mean, you're, you're going to have a real pressure on the younger people to, to continue to have anything like the quality of lifestyle that, that we ha- we've had before. So communities are going to look different. Um, and, yeah, um, I, I really worry about loneliness and all of this. You know, we haven't used that word yet, but that is a core word that I think that we need to apply. Oh, it's not the right word. 
people who don't find uh, a partner, people who don't have children when they wanted to have children, um, are likely to face a level of loneliness. And there's many support groups online already for this. You, you can see, you can read the stories, you can even read the stories. I imagine after this podcast, you'll see comments uh, coming up of people in this situation who, you know, who, who left it too late, dealing with a level of loneliness. But then you take older people. So there's a community in Japan where I visited where 50 years ago, it was filled with younger families and today it's only older people. But it's mainly older women living there alone because partners, men tend to die younger. So you have this situation where uh, we went to the local grocery store and they, we hear that these women come out maybe once a week to do their shopping and they're spending forever talking whilst they're paying for their groceries. Because that's the only person they're getting to talk to weekly. And we've got to do something about this. Clearly, we can't let people remain in their apartments without a sense of community. But we're going to have to think about so many issues, so many problems that come out of this that, that we are, we're not scratching the surface of yet. And Stephen, is the sorry, Francis, yeah. just I wanted to ask this one other question on this. Other than sub-Saharan Africa, where people are very happily breeding away and enjoying big families and, and, and all of that, and there's fewer childless women, I think. Is, am I saying anything that's incorrect? There? Yeah, but I don't think they're enjoying having bigger families. If, if you, the reason people have large families is typically because of extreme poverty. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it, once you put in running water and opportunities for education, that changes completely. Right. So what you can say is in sub-Saharan Africa, where people are having fewer children uh, year by year, it's quite significant, but still there. You have extreme poverty in many areas, and that's causing larger families. I think it's a better way to put it. Okay, that's a more accurate way of putting it. Is there an antidote? I've spoken to some people from Israel recently, and they're telling me, you know, Jerusalem is the best place, there's kids everywhere, blah, 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 blah. Is Israel, does Israel offer some kind of solution? Like, where can we look to for some answers to this? So there's two places that are interesting. One's Israel, one's Hungary. Um... Israel is a very stratified society. I've never been there. I hope to go this year, but I can see from the data very clearly, you have quite high childlessness and rising childlessness. It's about 20% there now, but you have 15% of mothers having six or more children. Right. The Orthodox, I imagine. People tell me that. Yeah. Um, But there is something interesting in Israel. The most uh, common family size in Israel is three children. And that's quite rare. Usually it's two. Mm-hmm. So is there a learning there? Perhaps, again, I don't ever want to tell someone to have more children than they naturally want. But I don't think we're going to get 15% of mothers in other countries having six or more children. That, that's just not realistic. Hungary is the other one where they have a lot of policies. Um, for example, in Hungary, if you're a young couple, you can get a loan to buy a house. And the loan will increase depending on how many children you effectively commit to up to four. So you're going to get a bigger loan to get buy a bigger house without even ha- having had your first child. Mm. If you don't have four children, well, you have to pay some of the money back. So you only, you actually, you only get the benefit of this loan when you actually have children. Now, the interest, and I'm not saying that's, that maybe that's coercive, but what is interesting about it is the actual structure of family size in Hungary has not changed at all, like everywhere else. You don't have any more people than before and once they become a, a parent having one, two, three, four children. But you do see a significant reduction in childlessness. Mm. Um, quite significant. And it's too early yet to say that this is causal. Um, but it's certainly something I, I think we sh- should look at. Is there a way to, you know, through loans, encourage people to take away economic vulnerability, wh- which is there for people to say, look, okay, if you do have the children you think you're going to have, you know, here's this and you have to pay back some of it if you don't. Uh, again, I, I don't want to comment necessarily on what's good or bad here and specific policies, but those are two countries. Um, I could talk about Russia very briefly if, if you wanted to. Of course. Because Russia is also sided with, uh, as having policies that have somewhat successfully encouraged people to have more children. And Russia's birth rate did dip very low and then did go back up. But if you look underneath this, up until 95, the most common family size in Russia was one child. Over half of families were having only one child. And um, that, that I, I don't know why that is. 
But from 95 onwards, that started to normalize. Normal mean become more similar to other countries where two was the most popular and the number of people having only one child fell sharply. So it wasn't really an increase in overall birth rates. It was, it was a reduction in people only having one child. Whereas right now in Russia, birth rates are just falling through, through the roof since around 2015, I believe it is, births I think are down, it might be 30%. So um, you know, all of these countries that people look at and go, oh, Russia did something good here. It's never as easy as that, or it's rarely as simple as that. And do you think as well part of this problem is, and, and Constantine has actually mentioned it more in passing than anything else, is society, particularly Western society, is very antenatal. So whenever I hear you talk about South Korea, you talk about, in, correct me if I'm wrong, 0.8 yes. is a replacement rate in yes. South Korea. yes. I was reading about South Korea the other day when I was researching for this uh, for this interview. They have child-free zones mm. in you know I think it's in the south in an island in South Korea, and they say you no children allowed in coffee shops, restaurants, etc., etc. And then you go, and then you wonder why people don't want kids. South Korea, I did film there. Um, um, with several people from Korea appear. It's a culture where there are issues, um, work-life balance, and you know, women do get paid less than men. There are certain cultural issues you mm -hmm. would point to. What's uh, the term that's used in the media is birth strike, but none of the women I actually talked to uh, in Korea were saying, "Well, I'm on strike." <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a cute media term. The reality is, women in Korea are starting families very late, mm -hmm. much later than other countries, and they're not achieving uh, the same family size as other countries would do. And Spain's very similar as well, by the way, in terms of the number of people starting families really late. So in those countries, you find very high proportions of families with only one child again. Um, I hadn't heard of the child-free island. I must research that, but it sounds horrendous. And, you know, the anti-natalism, it, it is out there. Um, I, you know, oh, 100% it's yeah, out there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. You meet so many people. I, I'll be honest with you. I used to be like that. Before we had our son, I used to find kids annoying. I do. And I think the fewer of them are around, actually the more annoying you find them because they become the anomaly. Mm -hmm. It's like almost everybody's had experience of getting on a plane, seeing a baby going, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm not going to get any rest, I'm not going to get any sleep. Whereas I think if everyone was having kids around you, it would be a whole different experience because it's like, well, it's just part, like you get on a plane, there's going to be some kids on there because there's going to be some men and some women. It's like part of the thing. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So I think there's an awful amount of it uh, around. Do you know the thing that irritates me most um, is a term used a lot and we haven't used it here. I don't want to ever use it, but it's putting the word child and free in the same Right. Mm. Yeah, I call it the CF word. <laughs> and the CF word is used commonly in the media. It's used in some academia. But the word free means free from something harmful. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the idea that children are harmful. So you put the word free after disease-free, germ-free, debt-free, mortgage-free, things that are universally negative. Not something that you want and you don't want. Not a selective thing. So the idea that there's people out there who would use the CF term, you know, as a parent, I find it offensive. The idea that I might want to be free from my children. Or if a teacher in school was saying to my children, when they're younger, oh, that, that they are child free. What would that do to a child hearing from a teacher? Oh, maybe my parents also want to be free of me. I mean, it's, it's damaging to children. So this is where I see this. Well, not, not, not exactly subtle, qu quite obvious, antinatalism creeping in everywhere. And I, I think that term just has to be called out for what it is. is... Well, I think on a more positive level, uh, I, I always try and talk about how much I enjoy being a parent, to, just to get the idea out there that it's actually a lot of fun. It's not something you want to be free from. It's something, for, if it's right for you, like you want to make that happen. Yes. So we're going to go to our supporters only questions in a second um, on Locals and we'll, they've got a bunch of great questions for you. But before we do, just so wrapping it up, if I'm watching this, I'm 23 years old, I'm a young woman, I want to be a parent, I do want to be a parent at some point, what are you telling me? Um, start thinking from now about how that's going to best happen for you. Don't wait until you're 28, 32, 35, 
um, and be aware that you will have to make compromises, almost certainly. Something will have to give. And if you don't make a decision for yourself to have a child, yes, unplanned childlessness will be the consequence. You may have your career and that might be fine. You, you may have friends, other extended family, that's fine. But the thing that is most likely to give is family if you don't in some way start to consider it from age 23. And if I'm a policymaker listening to this, because there are some of those too, what are you telling me? Show this documentary in all your schools or start education about this in schools because people need to know about fertility challenges from high school age. They need to know that there's only a 50-50% chance of becoming a, a mother, um, a, a man that's only a little bit older too. People need to know that when they're planning their lives. Policymakers spending more money on you know, enabling people to have children may be a good idea. More kindergartens, that might be good, but those things don't fix the problem. They never have, and I don't think they ever will. It's about information. Stay information. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Before we move to locals, our final question is always the same. What's the one thing we're not talking about that we really should be? Well, unplanned childlessness. Yeah. I know I've already said it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, but I'll say unplanned childlessness in a broader context here. We've talked a lot about women becoming unplanned childless, but it happens to men too. And how it happens to men is we think we can wait and wait and wait because technically, mostly, we're able to have children later than women. But do you know what happens? Age 45, you're competing with a 35-year-old version of yourself to find the same woman who's able to have children. So there are actually more childless men than childless women. And I think men need to understand that this applies to them just as much. That makes a lot of sense. Stephen, where can people watch the BirthCap? So birthcap.org is a website we, 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 um, we have. The part one of the documentary is on there. The other parts are, are available for members only because we're working with some streaming services right now to look at possibly having them brought out later this year. Um, part one is also on YouTube. And I, I caught it on YouTube yeah. and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So I recommend everybody check it out there and, and continue to follow it. And we will go over to locals. Uh, join us there. He says, I agree with David Attenborough when he says all our environmental problems become easier to solve with fewer people and harder and ultimately impossible to solve with even more people. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.